Welcome to the STR Insiders Podcast. We share tips for achieving your STR goals, aha moments, funny stories, and all the latest gossip of this STR life. Listen in as we keep it real and maybe a little sassy, celebrate successes, and own all the mistakes we've made along the way. Whether you're new to real estate investing, new to short-term rentals, or a seasoned pro, there's something here for you. Jackie is an STR property manager who consults with individuals looking to grow their own property management firm. Tracy owns STR consulting and media firms that provide education to investors who want to learn all about STR investing. For more information, please visit www.thestrinsiders.com. Okay, so we have Jay Scott on the STR Insiders today. He's a successful entrepreneur and investor, and in the past decade, he's bought, built, rehabbed, sold, lent on, and held over $160 million in property all over the country with his partner at Bar Down Investments. He was previously a co-host to the Bigger Pockets business podcast, and he just launched a new podcast, Drunk Real Estate, which I just listened to, and I have to say, I highly recommend it. Jay runs the popular website, 123 Flip. And he's an author of five books on real estate investing, including his best-selling books on flipping houses. So we're really excited to have Jay on. He's such an inspiration to so many in real estate. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Jay, you're amazing. Your background is as an engineer. Is that right? It is. You have this very analytical approach and like numbers focused when you communicate, educate, which we appreciate. At least I do. Thank you for that. Me too. So... The information that you put out is so detailed and in-depth. It's not this surface level information. I can tell you've really dug in and crafted your theories and opinions based on sources. And so we're curious a little bit about who your sources are. Like you're one of my trusted sources, but who are your trusted sources? I appreciate that. I'm a big fan of primary sources. So I like to go right to the data. And certainly I, I like to hear other people's takes on the data and get their opinions. I found too often if we don't go to the primary sources, then we fall prey to this idea of confirmation bias where we come up with some idea in our head and then we find sources that support our ideas and ignore those that don't. We listen to people that say they think the things we believe and then they, we stop listening to the people that disagree with us. And so I'm a big fan of, I like to see the data first. I like to go to the primary sources first and form my opinions. In terms of like where I find that data, a lot of good economic sites. So I'm a big fan of follow the Bureau of Labor Statistics, so the BLS. That's where we'll see a lot of this primary data that comes out. If you hear that inflation is going one direction or another, go look at the actual data because often what you'll find is that headlines like to give us a single number. They like to tell us the inflation now is 4%. So after this past month, inflation is 4%. Well, what does that 4% mean? It turns out that 4% is basically the average of the last 12 months worth of data. It doesn't tell us what last month was. Last month was actually much, much, much lower than that. But you average the past 12 months and it's 4%. But if you look at a short-term view, it's actually a lot lower. But then you look at the data and you see that certain things in the economy, so for example, housing and food is actually still really expensive. And we're still seeing super inflation in those areas. We're seeing 
the opposite in areas like transportation and energy and gas prices. And so when we say that inflation was really low last month, it doesn't mean inflation on everything was low. It just means certain areas were super low. Other areas were pretty high, but the average was low. Looking at the, at the data, again, helps you form those opinions. Now, you've been emphasizing the significance of being recession-proof in real estate investing through your podcasts and platforms. How does that apply to short-term rental investing? So I'm going to start by saying I am not an expert on short-term rentals. In fact, I currently don't own any short-term rentals. I own a bunch of property here in Florida that I purchased with the intent of one day being short-term rentals. The county that I live in, they basically don't have laws that are very favorable for short-term rentals. That's minimum 30 days. And then we also have a lot of HOAs around here. I have a couple of condos and condo associations where the minimum rental period is four months or six months or even 12 months. So it can be pretty difficult to do short-term rentals where I live. I am hopeful that over the next couple of years that those laws are going to loosen up. And so what we've focused on over the past few years is buying property that would make fantastic short-term rentals, but also work for us as regular long-term rentals, one-year rentals, or even midterm. And so we do some of those, but we kind of focus on holding everything long-term for now in the hopes that when the market changes or government changes their mind, that we can roll all of, all of these long-term rentals into short-term rentals and start making a whole lot of money. In terms of where I think the economy is, I think things have changed over the last couple of years. What we saw up until around COVID time was that short-term rentals were great any place, any time, any type of property. People were basically moving away from hotels completely and going to short-term rentals because they didn't like this idea of a hotel. What I've seen since COVID is that there's kind of been a lot of people that have been moving back towards hotels. We're seeing uh, occupancies for hotels go up. We're seeing average price per night for hotels rebound a good bit since COVID. It seems that short-term rentals are doing very well. And I think this was a natural evolution. I think the pendulum swung all the way towards everybody's doing short-term rentals, Airbnbs, nobody's going to hotels. I think that that pendulum swung way too far. And now we're kind of swinging back towards the middle where short-term rentals have a very important purpose. And a lot of people recognize that purpose. And if you're buying rentals in areas where you can satisfy that need and that purpose, you're going to do really well. One of the things that Jackie and I both do, and another reason that you really resonate with me, is you talk about investing from a family-first, value-oriented perspective. And in my experience, investors, typically, it's more of a reactive thing. It's like, okay, I'm going to start doing all this stuff. And wait a minute, my home life is in chaos. I don't see my kids, my wife, whatever. What prompted it for you? And also what that looks like in practice for you now? So my wife and I both started in an industry that demanded a whole lot more time than even the most busy real estate investors. She worked for eBay. I was at Microsoft. So two big companies that really had this ideal that like you're working all the time. And even when you're not working, you're on call. And so when we decided to get married in 2008, we wanted to have kids, but this lifestyle of working 24-7 and traveling just wasn't conducive to starting a family. We both wanted to be able to raise a family, but we had both been in that industry for about 15 years and were burned out. And so we decided relatively quickly that we'd both quit our jobs. We'd both kind of raise a family and, and we'd figure out something that allowed us to have a lifestyle that was more life over work. 
And so in 2008, we quit our jobs. We moved from the West Coast to the East Coast. We ended up falling into real estate. We just basically had this goal from the beginning that we would never make a decision based on work or financial. Everything we made would be based on family and doing what was right for us kids. And so we had our first baby in 2009. We decided early on, either of us have to give up anything. And so our first son, he went everywhere with us. Two weeks old, he went to his first closing and he would be on job site with us. If I went to a conference or spoke at a conference, he would be right there with us. If he couldn't go for some reason, none of us went. And that was just kind of the, the way it was in the house. We had our second baby in, in 2011 and he followed the same pattern. For the first seven years of their lives, Everywhere we went, they went. They couldn't go. We didn't go. Did we miss some opportunities? Probably. I always said I'd never miss a piano recital. I'd never miss a soccer game or a basketball game. And I'm proud to say that for the most part, that has been the case. But it's difficult. I mean, anybody in this business knows that it's really easy to be on call 24-7 and to say, well, this one thing, whether it's a closing or whether it's a showing or whether it's looking at a new deal, it's always easy to say, well, this is really important, so I have to take this, but it's a slippery slope. And we can easily find ourselves saying that about everything. At the end of the day, you just need to make that decision that family is always more important than anything for work, no exceptions. Yeah, it resonates with me a lot. And this has been more of a journey for me to prioritize my family. I've really prioritized my business at first. And I've made a lot of sacrifices personally to make my product management company work. And it's kind of shifted towards exactly you know what you're saying. If Milo can't come with me, I don't want to go anymore. Milo's probably been on a plane more than any other five-year-old. What a great experience for him. And we get to experience it together. And we continue to kind of shift into that direction where we're always prioritizing our family first now. I find a lot of happiness in that. Yeah. And it's also going to help them grow up surrounded by people that are doing things differently than a lot of people in this world. Now, you have a, a business partner, Ashley Wilson. How long have you guys been partners? We first met in 2015 or 16 at a conference. She was kind of doing her own thing. I was doing my own thing. We never kind of synced up on doing the same thing. She ended up moving into multifamily. And then in 2018, 19, when I decided to get into multifamily, I reached out to her and basically said, hey, would you mentor me? Would you help me learn the business? I said, in return for that, I'll come work for you for a year. I'll do whatever you need me to do. I can get you coffee or I can actually do stuff that's that's more valuable if you think I can handle it. And she said, that's great. And so uh, we made an agreement that for a year, like I would just come be her coffee boy or whatever she needed. She would teach me the business. And about a year in, she said, hey, how would you like to, to come be my partner and, and we can run the business together? And so in 2020, we partnered up formally. We did our first deal in 2020 and have been partners ever since. So basically... An apprenticeship? Is that how, does that sound like? The yeah, word? internship, apprenticeship, mentorship, however you want to look at it. The key was, and the key always is, both sides need to be getting equal value. And sometimes that value comes in the form of payment. In this case, she didn't want me to pay anything. She was just happy to get my knowledge and my expertise and access to my network. So it was beneficial to her. And obviously, I got to learn the business, so it was beneficial to me. And so, yeah, the key is both sides getting equal value out of it. And there's lots of ways to do that, but this is what worked for us. 
Before entering into a partnership, what advice would you give our listeners who are considering doing that? Yeah, so I kind of think of it as there are five things I kind of look for. And I like to say that a business partnership is maybe one of the most risky things financially you'll ever do. A lot of people think a marriage is is risky financially, but I I like to joke that if you end up getting divorced, you're probably going to lose half your money. If you have a business partnership that goes bad, you can easily lose all your money. So you have to be even more serious about people you partner with. Here are the five things I kind of look for or ask myself before I'll ever get into a partnership with anybody because I've had some bad ones. One, do we have a history together? Is this somebody that I feel like I know? Because there are a lot of times where we'll enter into a partnership and we'll find that there are things outside of the business that make it difficult to work together. If you have two different religions and you have different value systems, different moral systems, that can be an issue. And I've actually seen lots of partnerships break up because the two people had a different definition of morals and ethics. And so it doesn't even have to be religion. It can just be simply ethics. But just having that history outside of the business together is really important. Number two is just, do you agree on the vision? So do you agree on where the company is going to go and what types of deals the company is going to do? I like to ask, how long do we think this partnership is going to last? What are the end goals? I often see partnerships that don't work because the financial goals of the two people are very different. And we like to assume that everybody has the same financial goals. We go into a partnership thinking, well, he wants to make a lot of money. I want to make a lot of money. Everything's going to be good. But imagine a situation where you had this idea that you want to make $10 million a year. That's your definition of success. And you have a partner who believes my definition of success is making $500,000 a year. This has actually been, funny enough, probably one of the biggest issues that Ashley and I have. She's about 10 years younger than I am, and I certainly know where she's coming from because I was there 10 years ago. She wants to build a billion-dollar company, and she will. There's no doubt in my mind that she's not going to stop until she builds a billion-dollar company. Me, I'm a little bit older and I'm kind of like, if I can build a 50 or $100 million company, I'm pretty happy. Now, you would think that that shouldn't cause issues, but there are actually times where we'll have conversations about doing these deals that would get us pretty close to a billion dollars if we keep doing those over the next 10 years. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's a lot of work. And she's sitting there thinking, no, that's barely going to scratch the surface because that's just my first billion. And so we actually have this issue to some degree, but I see a lot of other people that have it at a much smaller scale. And again, if one person's thinking, I want to make $100,000 a year and another person's thinking $500,000, you are going to run into an issue when you hit that first $100,000 and one partner is pretty happy and the other one's 20% of the way there. The third thing is who's in charge? We kind of go in with this attitude that when you're a partnership, well, nobody's in charge. But when there's two people, it's really hard to be democratic about decision-making because you're not always going to agree. So at the end of the day, somebody needs to have the final decision. And you need to be comfortable with one of two situations. One, where you're the person making that final decision, you need to be comfortable knowing that the partnership and the business is in your hands. You make some bad decisions and there goes the the business. Or you're in a situation where the other person's making all those decisions and now you're in a situation where you don't have as much control. You need to be good with that. And so it's very important that at the end of the day, one person has the ability to make final decisions. So for example, in our business, Ashley kind of runs acquisitions. She runs operations. So when it comes to anything, acquisitions or operations, she has the final say. I run legal. I run accounting. I run all the capital raising and kind of all the HR type stuff. And so when it comes to that stuff, I have final say. 
But there are going to be times when there are things that overlap or there are going to be times when we deal with something that's outside of any of those areas. And we've agreed, Ashley makes those decisions. And I'm good with that. And is she always going to make the right decision? Probably not. Hopefully, she's going to consult me on the big decisions and take my views into account. But at the end of the day, I have to be okay knowing I don't get the final decision on some things that may be really important to our business. I am okay with that, but not everybody would be. Number four, would I work for that person or would I hire that person? And this is a huge one because a lot of times we assume that when you're partners, again, things are are done equally. Maybe you're working together or you're doing something and they're doing something else. But a lot of this business, when you're a partnership, is one person working for the other person. And again, when it comes to operations and acquisitions, I work for Ashley. If she needs help with that, she's going to tell me what to do and she's going to tell me how to do it. And I need to be good with that. If I need help with fundraising, I'm going to tell her what needs to be done and how I, I need it to be done to mesh with my systems and processes. And she has to be good with that. So you have to be good working for the other person. And you also have to be good with being able to hire the other person because there are going to be plenty of situations where you're not really partners. It's going to be much more like an employee-employer relationship and you need to be comfortable. And then number five is probably the the most basic is what is your skill set? New investors, they'll go to a conference or they'll go to a, a meetup and they'll find somebody that's just like them. They'll be like, oh yeah, I come from the tech industry too and I just got into real estate and I want to flip houses. Let's go do this together. And what they don't realize is there's two people that have the exact same strengths and the exact same weaknesses. That's not going to work. You don't need two people with the same strengths. You need one person with strengths. You need another person that can cover all that person's weaknesses because between the two of you, you need to be one superhuman. That's the goal. And so you want to make sure if you're looking for a partner, while you want to have the same morals, ethics, general values, you want to have very different skill sets. So be very selective. I'm very happy to say I'm pleasantly married to Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) You've been my favorite partner. (laughs) We have such a great marriage. (laughs) I do the consulting and investor consulting and that kind of stuff. And she does the management and setups and just commiserating on the things and helping each other kind of problem solve. What do you the most about each other as partners? I don't know that I hate anything, hmm. but... Uh, There's something. Come on. Are we going to say it? <laughs> say it. Very motivated to grow as fast as she can manage. Giving credit where credit is due, she turns down a ton of clients on like a daily basis. So I'm not to say that she's taking everything. She definitely isn't. But I don't know if she knows what downtime is. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jackie. You're so direct sometimes. Uh, Yes, I am. (laughs) And although I need to be checked, sometimes it crosses a line. That's fair. <laughs> you will never misunderstand how I feel about you. I cannot turn it off, but I am aware that it definitely is a challenge for the people in my sphere. But I also appreciate it. I love knowing exactly where I'm at with you at any given moment of any given day. And sometimes I need to be checked. I had that inquiry to manage that cosmic Airbnb. There was like an astronaut in there and there was a pilot. And I was like, how do I say no to this when I have to? Meanwhile, I have like 14 listings to get live this week. And Tracy's like, what are your goals, Jackie? (laughs) That's all I asked. What are your goals for your portfolio? And she was like, but it's so awesome. And I was like, that didn't answer my question. (laughs) So I closed the email. But I mean, that for me is me asking a leading question. It actually wasn't me giving direction. It was just like, 
What is your goal? Does it align? It's really important that you can have the hard discussions. And that's something that I've learned from Ashley. Every few months, everybody will have a meeting with everybody else. And you go in and the goal is to basically say all the things that you think they're doing well and all the things you think they're doing poorly and can work on. And I remember the first time I went in with Ashley and it was easy to say all the things we were doing well. And then we got to like the things that the other person wasn't doing well. And I'm not big on conflict. And so I was like, hmm, well, let's see. We went to this restaurant and I didn't like the salad dressing you ordered. And uh, I just, I, I mean, I was picking ridiculous stuff. And so I'm like having trouble coming up with bad things. And then it's her turn. And she breaks out the, she breaks out her notebook. Yeah. And she's like, number one. It was it was cruel. She was beating me up. And she wasn't scared to say things that like would hurt my feelings because she knew this was important to the partnership. All of these things she said, they were hard to hear. But now I had a whole list of things that I could work on that could make this partnership better. And here's the awesome thing. My wife loves it the most because half the things that Ashley says, these are things my wife's like the exact same thing. So yeah, don't be scared as partners to give that hard, critical feedback because it doesn't mean you don't love each other. It doesn't mean like you don't want to be partners. You're just really trying to improve the partnership. And I think that's one of the things that I really like about our partnership is that, you know, you mm-hmm. put us on the spot. Anybody listening, we did not know Jay was going to ask us that. By the way, that was not. Thank bad. you for bringing our therapist, Jay, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning myself. But but we definitely have had tough conversations and moments where we're stressed out or things are not going the way we expected them to. And that is a big part of one, why we asked you this question, because you have a successful partnership. And as you mentioned, you've had a few that weren't great. And I think you learn just as much from those as you do from the ones that do go well. Yeah. And remember, just don't be scared to say no to a partnership or to start very slowly because most of them are not going to work out. So we need to launch properties quickly in short-term rental. I mean, in all real estate, launch fast means more money. But in short-term rental, it really equates to every day you don't launch is lost revenue, hundreds or thousands of dollars. And so flips are really attractive because they're turnkey. And so you don't have that downtime to get the property ready. But I'm really leery about buying flips because I've seen so many bad ones and would love any tips or insights you have that we could apply to filter or to evaluate one flip versus another so we could expand our acquisition opportunities and get launches faster. Yeah, don't buy flips. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you just said that. So nothing wrong with flipping if it makes sense for a particular deal, but I'm not a fan of flipping as a business because I think you're missing out on a lot of value in real estate. In real estate, you make money four ways. You make money on the appreciation. So either natural appreciation, value of the property goes up over time or forced appreciation, you do a renovation or or something and, and you increase the value of the property. That's what the flip gets you. That gets you that appreciation you buy low, you sell high, you make a pot of cash. But then there are three other ways to make money in real estate that the flip doesn't get you. Number one, cash flow. And that's the thing that we live off of. That's the thing that we, you put in place once and you, you enjoy for the rest of your life, hopefully. You don't get that with flipping. Number two is the tax benefits. 
And so with flips, you don't get tax benefits, but when you start to get a few properties or you buy a big property, you get some really nice tax benefits. The third is what we call amortization or principal pay down on loans. When you buy a rental property, oftentimes you'll get a loan and every month you're paying down part of the principal. Actually, better than that, your tenants are paying down part of the principal every month. And so they pay $150 of the principal next month. Well, that's just as good as $150 of cash flow or $150 of appreciation. You just put $150 in your pocket. With flips, yeah, you get nice buckets of cash that you pay a lot of taxes on, but you don't get the cash flow, you don't get the real tax benefits, and you don't get that principal pay down. And that's the holy grail of investing. And so what I would tell anybody is, yeah, flip if you have to, but make sure you're using that money that you're making from the flips to buy stuff that you're holding long-term. Totally agree. I have consulting clients that are flippers or LTR, typically my clientele. Flippers are the toughest because they're used to these big chunks of cash. It's almost like a a junkie getting a hit. It is. It's the dopamine hit. Yep. (laughs) So I have to like condition them to like, we want consistent long-term cash flow. I I used to say with a flip, it's generally like 89 really bad days followed by one good day. There are 89 days that you're spending money and then there's one day that, that you actually make money. Nice thing with rental properties is every day you're making money. You may not get a check every day, but every day you're making money. What is your primary focus today? We are buying and holding midterm, so five to seven years, large multifamily. So we're syndicating large multifamily deals. And where can people find out more about you and connect? So if you go to www.connectwithjscott.com, that'll link you out to everything you need to know. Awesome. Jay, thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us. We're really grateful for you. Absolutely. This was fun. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so grateful if you rated and reviewed it. Also subscribe. Subscribe for more insider knowledge. We can help you get the edge in the STR world. You can find additional resources for your STR journey, as well as our social media handles at the strinsiders.com.